Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our second service. Uh, my name is Lester, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're continuing our, our series um, in the Lord's Prayer, and I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 16, uh, verses 5 to 15, the New International Version, which you can find on the screens uh, to your left and right. Matthew chapter 6, starting from verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for you think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Hey, what's going on, Renaissance? My name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, you might not know this about me, um, but there's one thing that controls my day more than anything else, and that is uh, my son Jameson's nap schedule. Uh, anybody in here who's a parent of a small child, you know that the goodness of your day depends on whether or not your child has taken a nap. Now, what separates a beautiful day full of Instagram family selfies from a day where we are under the tyranny of a toddler that is screaming and crying and kicking all hangs and falls, rises and falls on whether or not he has taken his nap. And this is one small thing that, that put in its right place will thrive. The day we will flourish. It will be a great day. But if you take it out of its one place, uh, the rest of the day will be miserable. I've left people in the middle of them telling me their deepest, darkest secret. I'm like, hey, listen, I know that's bad, but listen, I'm going to let you finish. But Jameson's nap is the greatest thing of all time, and i got to get to that, so excuse me. I haven't done that. I'm not that bad, but I've thought about it. And maybe you're a coffee lover, and it doesn't matter what happens in your day. Uh, it doesn't matter if you catch the train on time, and it's the express train, and it doesn't matter if you miraculously get a seat, and it doesn't matter if you're, you're, the platform is perfectly cooled down. If you don't have your coffee in the morning, the day is a miserable place. Your coworkers get on your nerves. Uh, everybody gets on your nerves, and until you've had your coffee, nothing else is good. Now, it makes sense in a lot of ways that there are some things that we need to have in their proper place in order for the rest of the day, the rest of the things that are going on around us to make sense and to fit. And we are in this series called The Lord's Prayer, and we are looking and learning from Jesus how it is that we are to pray. Now, when I ask you to think about your prayer life, um, a lot of times uh, some of the things that come over our minds are guilt or feeling like we're not doing enough or one thing or another. But here's what Jesus' goal for you in learning how to pray, that you would experience real transformation and real connection and real intimacy and real closeness with God as a father. But in order for us to have that, you and I, uh, in order for us to have a, a flourishing, thriving prayer life, we need to have some things in place so that everything else 
can make sense. And here's what Jesus uh, gets at that we're going to dig into today. That thing is worship. Now, as we examine that word, it's a pretty loaded word, and some people kind of recoil when they think about it because you're thinking about worship in a couple of contexts. You're thinking about a song, right? I'm not really the slow song type of dude. I'm not really an R&B dude. You know what I'm saying? I'm more of a hip-hop dude. So worship is not really my thing. Uh, because I don't really, I'm not even a, a fan of slow music like that. And, and worship is not a type of song. Worship is not uh, an emotional feeling. Oh man, I worship so well today. It's not the warm and fuzzy feeling that comes along with uh, being a part of a moving church service. And, and let, me, let me just say that some things like that are part of worship, but they are not worship in and of itself. Worship is something that is much different, much deeper, and much better than just a feeling that happens um, on Sunday or Sunday mornings uh, when you come to church. Worship is what you um, have set apart to be the most valuable, important thing in your life. Now, if I were to ask you a question, hey, what is the one thing that you need in order to be okay in life? Uh, what is it that you need um, in order to understand who you are? What's the thing that you need in your life, operating in your life to be, if I have this, then I'll be good? And the answer to that is what you worship. Now, worship is not these warm and tingly feelings. And Jesus says that as we get into prayer, as we get into the Lord's Prayer, as he's teaching us what it means to pray, that there's a couple of things that we have to get set in place, that God has to be set in his proper place as one that is distinct and separate as the one who fuels us as the one who gives us our identity and our purpose and all the things and answers the deepest questions about ourselves. Because if we get that wrong, if something else occupies that space of where God is supposed to be, everything else in our lives and certainly in our prayer lives will be out of whack. Now, last week, we looked at the first part of the Lord's Prayer, uh, which is a line that Jesus starts off the prayer with is, our Father. And if you were here last week, you heard the message, so I'm not going to go too deeply into that. But before we get into anything else in understanding what prayer is, we have to know who we're talking to, right? Prayer is a conversation, and in any conversation, you have to know who you're talking to. Um, I don't often pick up the phone when it's a number that I don't recognize. You know, I got the bill collectors trying to get at your boy, so I don't always pick up the phone. When I do, the first question I ask is, who is this, right? And you kind of ask angrily, like, yo, who is this? Who are you? Like, what nerve do you have to call me, AT&T? What nerve do you, you got some nerve. The first question you want to know is, who are you speaking to? Because who, the person you're speaking to will frame the entire conversation. If, you're, um, if a number comes up that you don't recognize and you pick up the phone, like, who is this? And it's your grandmother who you love, you'll respond differently than you would to a bill collector. And what frames the conversation more than anything is who it is that you're speaking to. And as we discovered last week and we've discovered throughout Scripture, the entirety of what Jesus came to do is to put you in a relationship with God as your father. Not God as your boss, not God as your professor, not God as your homeboy, but God as your father. And there's a much different way that your father would relate to you. There's a much different way that you would approach your father than it is you would approach someone else. Uh, yesterday, we had a membership class, and for lunch, we had Chipotle. So listen, those of you guys who missed out, you missed out on some good eats. 
And my wife came, uh, we had some extra burritos, so I told her to come and bring the baby with her, and they stayed around for lunch, and then we had a little bit left after uh, to talk about, um, after they were there, and they, stick, they stuck around for a little bit and were a part of the conversation. And Jameson, like any 16-month-old, is not the greatest person to have like in a serious conversation, because he'll randomly just scream something out of nowhere. And to be perfectly honest, um, it is very disruptive to have somebody just in the middle of your question just scream something, right? And there's nobody else on this planet that while I was talking, if they started screaming and digging their nose and laughing uncontrollably for no reason, would I find that acceptable, let alone adorable? But for Jameson, I actually kind of liked it. Now, I haven't asked everybody, uh, Dion, you might know better than me, um, whether or not they found it to be as entertaining as I found it to be yesterday, but I seriously doubt it. And here's the thing, a father is not annoyed at you. God, your father is not annoyed with you. And if you don't leave here with anything else besides that, just know that when you pray, God is not annoyed at you. He's not angry. He's not uh, recounting the list of things that you didn't do today. God, your father, um, this is what Jesus is trying to teach us as he teaches us to pray. God wants you to be in the room with him. And the entirety of the story of scripture is not about a God that tolerates you or merely accepts you. It's a God that ravagely is coming after uh, lost humanity. So much so that he sends his son Jesus to endure the cross for you and for me. Now, this is not a God that's annoyed with you or barely wants to tolerate you, but God loves you and he wants you to pray to him. So that's the first thing that Jesus sets up in, in prayer that we're praying to God, our father. And even as a parent, um, uh, you don't have to uh, have a lot of things set in order and have things perfectly before you go to him in prayer. Uh, the way I understand this the best is that people usually feel um, distant from God and they feel like they can't come and pray, they can't come to church when they haven't done good enough. Um, deep, they call themselves Christians, but deep down inside, you kind of believe in karma. You believe that I haven't done good, so God will not give me good. But the gospel cancels that out. The gospel is undeserving humanity finds its redemption in the cross. And check this out. God has already paid for you to, uh, to, to have this relationship so that you can call him. Years ago, uh, where are my 80s babies at? 80s babies in the room? Here we go. If you're like 89, don't clap. Because you ain't no 80s baby. You're like, you 2000s baby if you were born in 89. Hey, but I was born in 81. It was a great year to be alive. Um, and I remember being in high school, and uh, what was extremely common is that you would walk around with quarters in your pocket, right? So I had a beeper, um, and when somebody would beat me, I'd hold it up in the air, and I'd run to the payphone, like, okay, somebody. Um, and then I would actually put a public payphone to my cheek. Now, today, you couldn't pay me to put a public payphone to my face. If I were bleeding out, and my one option to get help was a public payphone. You know what? I think I'd risk it. I'd just say, you know what? I'm going to wait this thing out and see what happens. <laughs> but on, if you had a payphone, you know that you couldn't just pick up the phone and start talking and call somebody. You had to put money in the, in the, in the machine, and you could only speak for as long as you've paid for. You only had rights for as many quarters as you put in there. And for all of you telephone lovers, you had a little boyfriend or girlfriend, you stand out in the corner and you would just have a whole bag full of quarters and dumping them in one by one so you can stay on the phone. Hey, but there's one person, uh, this one group of people that you could call collect. That was your parents. 
You didn't have to pay anything. All you had to do was hit zero uh, and tell your parents to come pick you up from the movies. And your parents would pay for the conversation between you and them. They put it on their bill, not yours. When you approach God as a father, know this. God himself allows it to be a collect call, that you don't have to pay anything in advance because God himself welcomes you in to the conversation. That's the first thing that Jesus gets to in this prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And Jesus wants us to pray to a father. And in the second line that Jesus says, he orients our life around something much better and different than we normally orient our lives around. And that's his concept of worship. And Jesus says this phrase, hallowed be thy name. And Jesus basically uh, gives us the formula for how we are to set up our prayers. Before you get into asking God for anything, before you get into confessing all the things that you didn't do, you have to first stop and pause and look at who God is and make sure that God is in the proper place in your life. There has to be, praise has to come before uh, asking God for something and putting God in his proper place and worshiping God, not the emotional, warm and fuzzy feelings, but thinking about God as, as what he really is, is the most important thing before you move forward in prayer. The word hallow is an old English word, uh, which basically means to honor as holy. And holy, if you guys grew up in church, you might be thinking about, you know, the skirts down to your ankles, uh, the, the doily on your head and all that good stuff, right? Anybody been to a holiness church before? Um, holy basically means set apart. It means you treat this thing differently than you treat everything else. You treat this one thing differently than you treat everything else. This one thing has value that other things don't have, uh, don't have clearly nearly as much value. And here's the thing about your life. All of us, we don't get to choose if we'll worship. We choose what we'll worship. Everybody in this room is a worshiper. There's something you have attached your identity to. There's something that you're saying, if I don't have this, I don't have anything else. There's something that you've attached your value to. There's something that you have attached your attention to. And if that thing is not God, then you and I will spin out of control. Um, Our hearts, in a lot of ways, are like the moon. And the moon is meant to orbit around the earth. And if the moon looks beautiful whenever it's orbiting around the earth, but if the moon were to leave its axis and leave its orbit, its true orbit of rotating around the earth, it would crash and burn into all of outer space and we would never see it again. And here's what Jesus is saying about our prayer lives. The reason our prayer lives are crashing and burning is that we have not set it to an orbit around God and who God really is. But there are other things, competing things, Sometimes it's ourselves um, that draw us away from having God to be be in a place that is hallowed. For some people, it's a relationship. Um, It's a spouse or a significant other. um, And that spouse, that significant other, has become the most important thing to that person. That's the thing that is uh, set apart to give them value and meaning and all these different things. And I've talked to so many couples, and usually when one spouse or one significant other puts so much weight in it, Uh, they become almost intolerable, that they can't handle the mistakes of their spouse. They can't tolerate it when their spouse is not perfect because they're looking to their spouse or their significant other to give them so much meaning. And when they don't give them that meaning, their entire world starts crumbling down. For some people, it's their kids. Um, It's great to be proud of your kids. Um, uh, There's nothing wrong with that. But 
uh, they live vicariously through their kids. And unless their kids have gotten straight A's and are going to the best school and are doing the best thing ever uh, to be seen by mankind, then they're not happy and they push their kids so hard and they're not gracious at all to their kids. They drive them harder and harder and harder. And some of you guys know what that feels because your parents did that to you. And some people, it's their work and their career. And this is probably the one that uh, I struggle with the most. Um, you know, I talk to my wife all the time about, you know, she, I moved her up from D.C. to plant this church in, in Renaissance. And so much of my value and my, my energy was saying, if Renaissance is not going right, then, man, I'm a failure. There's a scene in Rocky II where Rocky is sitting on the bed um, and uh, he's about to fight um, Apollo Creed. And he's sitting on the bed and he looks at Adrian and he says, Adrian, if I could just go 15 rounds with the champ, then I know I'm not a bum. If I can just go 15 rounds with the champ, then I'll know that I matter. And for a lot of us, our working career is, unless, if I can just make this money, if I can just have this thing, then I'll know that I matter. And we're getting our significance from this detached thing. Years ago, I was uh, coming back on a train, uh, the Metro North, like 2 a.m. from Grand Central, and I was studying for the bar exam. And it was this guy who was a lawyer who started talking to me. He says, man, I wish I could go back to the day um, when before I started practicing law, because now every single day I'm in at 7 and I don't get home until 2 a.m. And I don't even know who my kids are, to be perfectly honest. I see them like for like four minutes in the morning and every now and then on a weekend when they're not at soccer practice. And he was talking about how much he was working and his job, his job and his desire to make however much money he was making. And I asked him, say, hey, why don't you just like get another job? There gotta be other firms that are hiring that's not gonna drive you this much. And he says, man, I gotta pay for this and I gotta pay for this and I gotta buy this. We're trying to get this vacation house here. And here's what was at the center of his orbit. Here's what his heart was orbiting around uh, success, making it. And therefore, since his heart was orbited around success and making it, everything else in his relationship followed that. And here's what Jesus says. If your heart is not orbiting around God, if your heart is not orbiting around God, your Father, your prayer life will be completely out of whack. We won't thrive in our lives, our prayer lives, or anything else, uh, because we'll have something else that is center. And here's the thing that I found in my life. Here's the thing that I found in my life. Idols overpromise and they underdeliver. Every single idol in your life that tells you that you're going you're gonna to feel something, they all overpromise and they underdeliver. Every single last one. An even worse feeling than not reaching your dream is getting your dream and realizing that it doesn't satisfy you. Uh, there's so many things in my life where I've thought, man, if I just had this, things would be great. And you get it and you're like, this is just, I'm just as broken as I was. I'm just as needy as I was yesterday and nothing has fixed it. And this is what Jesus is teaching us in scripture. Listen, you have to center your life around something that can sustain the weight of your identity. You have to center your life. You have to center your prayer life, your approach to God around something that's not going to move to the left or to the right every other day. You have to center your life around God and God himself, God our Father and what he has done for us. Jesus gives us a couple of examples of what our life will look like if we are not centered around God. And uh, he talks, one, about the Pharisees. Um, these two symptoms are this, visible religiousness, and two, uh, living a life where it's all about getting what we want. Right? These are symptoms that your heart is orbiting around the wrong thing, where you have public adoration without private devotion. 
Jesus gets at the Pharisees. He warns people to pray just to be seen. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray, standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by others. Um, if being seen by others is our motivation um, in all the things that we do in our prayers or all of our religious activity, if it's to be seen by somebody to be recognized, then God is not at the center of what you're doing. Years ago, uh, there was with this event that we did called Feed 500, and uh, there was this uh, one guy, he didn't go to Renaissance, I wouldn't throw none of my brothers under the bus, uh, but this one dude, like we were supposed to make 500 sandwiches, he made one sandwich and he took selfies the rest of the time. And like his entire Twitter feed was just like full of like, yeah, this is, we're in a building, we're doing this. I'm like, fam, you took, you made one sandwich. And you didn't even make it right. You didn't even put like no cheese on it, bro. He was there for all the public adoration he can get, but he had no private devotion. The only person he was there for was him himself. Listen, any relationship that you're in, um, if somebody publicly praises you, but privately they won't come home and do the dishes, that's something I'd worry about. Jesus warns us about having a public persona, and that's a superficial spirituality where we don't actually have roots and devotion and appreciation for God. And one of the biggest ways we know we're doing that is when we do stuff for show. The second thing is uh, living a life where we want to get just what we want. And um, the goal of our prayers, um, where the goal of our prayers is an outcome or some sort of material success and uh, Jesus talks about this at the end of chapter 6 in Matthew. Um, and this one is a tricky one because God does tell us to pray for things. Later in this chapter, uh, in, the, in the Lord's Prayer, God, Jesus says, hey, pray this. Um, you know, give us this day our daily bread, right? The, Jesus instructs us to pray for things. But when the goal of our prayers is an outcome, when that outcome is not reached, it will suffocate your prayer life. It will completely stifle and suffocate your prayer life because the only reason you were praying was to get some sort of success. And when that success is not reached, when that dream is not realized, when that thing doesn't happen in the timing that you thought it was going to happen, you'll struggle to pray because all along you weren't praying for God himself. You weren't praying to experience intimacy with him. You were praying for an outcome. And I've done this a thousand times. I've done this way too many times um, th than I want to admit. But if our hearts orbit around who God is and what God has done for us, then if the things, if somebody sees us or not, we'll do it. If we get the thing that we want or not, we'll still pray. Now, I've walked with people, um, one of my mentors, uh, Brother Al, I've mentioned him a lot, and he is one of the godliest men I've ever met. I've witnessed how he lived his life, and even as uh, he was battling cancer, he passed away a couple years ago. I've watched him look death in the face and, and see how fruitful his relationship was with God, even when his entire body was eating himself alive. And to see the faith and the maturity of, of that brother in the faith, it moved me to uh, understand in, in a lot of ways, and I, I haven't gotten there yet, trust and believe, but to see that our prayer lives can flourish and thrive even when we don't get the things that we want to get. And that only happens when our hearts are orbiting around God and God himself. Now, how does it come to be that our hearts orbit around God? I think the first thing is that we actually see the value of who God is. Um, imagine it like this. Imagine that there is a, um, 
a woman and she has a necklace and she got it from her mother and her mother got it from her mother and it's been passed down from generation to generation. And one day she's you know, looking at uh, her jewelry collection. She walked past the people on 2-5th that says we buy jewelry. And she says, you know what? Rent is a little, rent is high. I'm just gonna check this thing out and see how much money I can get for it. She goes into the jewelry, uh, to the jewelry store and uh, the guy comes out with a little glass, the little one eye glass thing, looks like a pirate. And he's looking at this piece of jewelry. And all of a sudden, as he's looking at it, he's examining it. Uh, he's looking at the different cuts of the, the jewels, and he's looking at the way it was constructed. He throws his eyepiece down, and his heart starts to beat, and he realizes that this is not just any old chain that she got from Macy's. This is something that has um, incredible value, that it's so valuable that it's more valuable than anything he's ever seen in his entire life. Now, once people realize the value of what they possess, it will lead them to treat that thing as so um, honored and distinct that everything else around it will be um, uh, shaped based on what they have discovered. There's a parable in scripture where Jesus talks about the kingdom of God is like a, a, a pearl in the field where a person discovers that there's this valuable pearl in the field. They go home, sell everything they have so that they can buy the field, so they can get this one thing. And here's what God is. God is that pearl that if we, um, as we grow uh, further and further along, we will discover the surpassing value of who God is. Paul prays it like this in Ephesians 1. He says, I pray that more and more the eyes of your heart, the eyes of your understanding will be opened so you can understand the breadth and the depth of who God is is. This is not an overnight thing. You're not going to snap your fingers tomorrow and all of a sudden wake up uh, and caught up in the ninth heaven. But my prayer for us as a, as a church, as a family, is that you and I would grow deeper and deeper to discover who God is and that God will be set apart and God will be something that we can esteem above all things. And even if we don't get the other things that we want, we would find our value in him. Now, the two most important questions we should be asking ourselves in prayer uh, in our lives really is, are these, is who is God and who are you? If you can answer those two questions, you're good. Who is God and who are you? And we don't want to move on to any other thing in, in life. We don't want to move on to other questions of what we want God to do until we have first established who he is. And God, as, as Jesus tells us to approach him, is, is hallowed. Jesus is high and set up. I mean, God is high and set apart. And if we treat God as just one thing uh, among other things, if we don't see the value of who God is in our lives, if we don't see the beauty of the gospel in our lives, if, that, if that's not being revealed to us, our hearts are going to be like a pinball machine just bouncing around to other things to try to find value. Jesus is saying that the most unmistakable way to grow in our prayer life and our connection to God is not that it's based on external things like the approval of people and getting what we want, but it really has come because we have been moved by God himself. So this teaches us, hallowed be thy name. Now, it's also interesting to note the order of this prayer. Jesus says, hallowed be thy name, before he says, give us this day our daily bread, or before he says, forgive us of our sins. And in your prayers, before you get to asking God what to do, before you get to asking God to forgive you for what you have done, you first have to reorbit your heart around who God actually is and establish this worshipful uh, place with God and putting him in his right perspective. Because if that's not right, everything else that follows after it will be wrong. 
there's a prayer for petition, which is basically asking God for what we want. And um, petition basically is looking at how we look at the world, and confession is how we look at ourselves, right? So petition is asking God to do things in this world. God, bring justice for the families of the slain men in Charlotte and Tulsa. That's petition. We're asking God um, for God to move in this world, to move in this country. And forgiveness or confession is asking God to move in our lives personally, right? But if we don't get worship right, we're going to get everything else wrong. Um, let me tell you guys how I get to this conclusion. Um, in our, if our hearts are out of order, then our entire prayer life will be out of order. Uh, if you have your Bibles open to Matthew 6, uh, look at the last two, uh, two of the last verses in uh, chapter 6, 25 and 26. Uh, before um, people come to Jesus and they're, and they're worried about all the things in their life, and he says, hey, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, isn't life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you much more valuable than they are. Here's what Jesus is saying in your prayer life. He's not saying when you pray for things, you should think about, does God have enough? He's not saying, um, hey, listen, there's, you're number 12 in line, and there's plenty of food. There's enough food for at least 50 people. Don't worry, you're going to get food. He doesn't get to that. He says this, look at the birds of the air. They don't worry, they don't sow, they don't reap, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than they are? And here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to push us to a place where our hearts and our mind would see the surpassing value of a relationship with the Father that has all things. He never even gets to the details of how God is going to provide or when things will happen. He simply points you back to adoring a Father that loves you and takes care of you. And God might not answer the question how he's going to do something, what he's going to do, or what order he's going to do it. He points us back to a Father that can be trusted. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever worked in a job where you have, like, somebody that's just on it, right? You can just give them a task, and they are, like, you don't even have to look or think about it ever again. We have people like that at Renaissance. Um, almost everybody on the staff uh, is like that, except for me, really. I'm the only one that drops the ball most of the time. Uh, Hema, our volunteer coordinator, shout out to Hema. Uh, she's one of those people that you can give her an assignment and literally never think about it again. Like, I don't even explain stuff to him. I just, like, type her a text, like, hey, can we do this, this, and this? And I literally leave it alone. And here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying we still don't have needs. I'm saying Hema is the type of person to get this done. And here's what happens in our prayer life. Deep down inside, whether you'd want to admit it or not, whether I'd want to admit it or not, our worries and our anxieties are basically saying, God, I don't trust you that you're the type of person that will get this done in the way that it needs to get done. And here's what worship and adoration does. It centers ourself back on a God that is holy, that is just, that is wise, that is sovereign. Uh, God asked Job a question when Job was doing all his complaining about what was going on in his life. He says, hey, Job, where were you? Where were you when I, when I formed this world? Tell me. How did all of this stuff happen that's happened? And what God was doing to Job was showing him, it was reorienting Job's prayers and Job's petitions around who he was. I'm sovereign. Nothing that happens happens outside of my knowledge and my control. I know what's going on. This is not taking me by surprise. And also in our forgiveness and our prayers for confession or, or looking for God to forgive us, um, I hear this all the time as a pastor that people have a really difficult time forgiving themselves and have a really difficult time feeling like God has forgiven them. And listen, I've disappointed myself before. I've done things that I said I was never going to do, and I know what that feels like. 
I know how deflating that is. I say you're never going to do something, and you do it. Sometimes you do it over and over and over again. I know what that feels like. But some people, no matter what they get to, they'll still land at a point that says, I can't forgive myself. And that sounds humble, but in reality, it's that God is off the access as the ultimate person that can give them forgiveness. That they've done something that offends themselves so much or a family member so much that since they've broken their own moral code or since they have broken their own rules so much that they can't forgive themselves because they themselves are at the center. It doesn't matter what God says. It doesn't matter what scripture says. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. They can't feel forgiven. It's not because God doesn't forgive. It's because you have set yourself up to be in this place where only you can give yourself this perfect record. And since you don't have it, you can't feel forgiven. Uh, imagine going to the Apple store and bumping into an iPad and knocking the iPad to the ground and shattering the screen. It would be a terrible thing if you did that because I love Apple. And imagine that day feeling really bad and feeling guilty uh, and then worrying about if you have to pay for something. And then the Apple uh, CEO, Tim Cook, calls you and says, hey, I heard that you knocked over the iPad, but don't worry, we forgive you. Now, what sense would it make for you to worry about um, breaking that iPad if the CEO, the person who ran the whole organization, already pronounced you uh, free and clear? Now, a lot of us in our prayer lives, we don't have God as the CEO, that God is supreme, so we won't feel uh, free, even if, this, the, even if God has pronounced us to be free indeed. And everybody who has placed their faith in Christ, everything that you have done, past, present, and future, has been nailed to that cross. And you can carry around that guilt all you want. You can feel that it's your groveling that makes you good with God all you want, but it doesn't add a thing. Now, only the gospel allows us to reorder God as the ultimate in our lives. And as we look at the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, our Father means that he is loving. He's a father. He's a good dad. And we look at the depths of his love for us, uh, how merciful he is to us. We look how low God has come because he loves us. But in heaven, he is majestic. We look at how high he stands. We look at the power of his glory. And it's when these two things converge, when we see the power and the glory and the majesty of God and how merciful and tender he is to us, that's when we can start to put God in his right place. And actually, your heart will be one towards adoration. Uh, there's a story that's been told a million times in churches around this world. And it's a story about a father and the two sons. I've told it here. Other people have said it here. We've mentioned it over and over and over again. And it's just that good. Uh, it's a story about a father and his two sons. You may have heard it called the prodigal son. And it's much bigger than the son. It's, it's all about the dad. And in those, in those days, it was a shameful thing for a man, especially an older man, to run. And scripture says that the younger son went off and spent his money um, in terrible ways. He made so many mistakes. And one day he realized to himself, listen, uh, I got to go back to my dad's house because even the servants are eating better than I am. I'm just going to go back and beg him for forgiveness. And scripture says that when the father saw him while he was a long way off, while he was a long way off, uh, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. Hey, when Jesus tells you to pray to a father, it's this, that your father saw you who were a long way off, and before you had the words to say, before you had the apology formed in your mouth, your father ran and took the shame that you deserved, and he took it on himself. Jesus took the shame that we deserved on the cross, and he put it on himself because he loves you. And if that uh, my prayer for me and for you is that our hearts are moved to adoration in the gospel, 
that we would see the depth to which we have made mistakes and also simultaneously the love that God for has, has for us in Jesus Christ. And this is what will shape our hearts towards adoration, not what's happening day to day, but what God has done for us on the cross. Now, today we are really, really excited. Uh, we have uh, one of our own brothers coming today to place his faith in Jesus publicly. My brother Yannick, give it up for him. He's going to come up in just a minute. And here's uh, what I love so much about baptism. Baptism is one of those sacraments where we get to celebrate what God has done uh, in the life of other people. Now, even when you hear Yannick's story and his life, uh, if you meet him, uh, it's not about him. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what Jesus has done in his life, past, present, and future. It's all about how Jesus has led him to this point and how Jesus will lead him on. And that is something absolutely worth celebrating. So I'm going to say a word of prayer, and I'm going to ask you guys to stand with me as we worship uh, before we celebrate baptism. <clears throat> 